it was just kind of this really cool sight to see half a million birds all just flying around this island. And so I later on went on to college uh, at the University of Florida, and I also started listening to EOC and started to really grasp the uh, field biologist to filmmaker episodes. And I knew I wanted to like get more into that. We get a lot of emails from listeners of this show. It's one of the most rewarding things about producing this podcast series, is hearing about how the show has shifted people's viewpoints on certain topics. We strive to adapt the show to make it as engaging and useful to you, our listeners, as possible. But earlier this year, I got an email from a listener that stood out. It read, Listening to your podcast in college helped me realize that I wanted to get into filmmaking rather than field biology, because I agree so much with your viewpoints and the reasons you got into wildlife filmmaking. Holy shit, I thought. We altered the course of someone's life with this podcast. His name is Zach Steinhauser, and he had already begun working on his first film by the time he reached out with that email. I responded right away to set up a conversation. There was a sense of responsibility that I had never felt before. I wanted to help ensure that Zach's project was successful. Now, I've fielded many calls like this from aspiring filmmakers, but this one was different, and not just because Zach was crediting this podcast as his inspiration. Zach reached out at a time when we were reassessing the strategic plan for our organization, Wild Lens. You may have heard about this on the episode of the podcast that we released a few months back, episode 153. In a nutshell, we had decided to restructure the organization as a collective and to place a heavier focus on creating a network of collaboration and support for people working at the intersection of conservation and media arts. Zach was exactly the type of person we wanted to help, so I asked if I could record our conversation for an episode of this show. So here we are. Welcome to today's episode of the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Zach Steinhauser. I uh, work at primarily as uh, what I like to call a conservation retailer. So it's basically a wild bird feeding store, but it operates out of a garden center. So I work with all of our customers to basically greenify or make their yards more wildlife friendly and uh, somewhat suitable habitat uh, that it wasn't before. And then I also uh, on the side, uh, work as a boat captain on a man-made lake called Lake Murray, just outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And there's a purple that occurs on one of its islands, and it is uh, said to be North America's largest. And so I work to take people on tours out to Bomb Island, which is where they roost, and uh, – I educate them about the uh, purple martin and their experience and tell them that they don't nest there. They actually nest in uh, these birdhouses and man-made this artificial habitat. Your project caught my interest because, you know, I think purple martins are super fascinating. I think it's really interesting how at least certain populations, uh, many populations of purple martins are dependent on 
these uh, nest boxes that, that people put out for them. Like, there's no other place where they nest. So it's this really interesting relationship that they have with people. It fascinates me. And so, you know, but maybe, like, maybe where we can go next is you can just talk a little bit, like, sort of introduce your Purple Martin uh, video project that you're working on, your your documentary project, and, uh, you know, maybe, like, bring us up to this point, right? Like, at what point did you, were you like, I need help or I need advice or, like, you know, uh, what what led you to, like, reach out? So, um, yeah, so what got me started with Purple Haze is I – uh, moved to this area of South Carolina uh, about 13 years ago. And um, growing up as a kid, every time we would come visit family, they'd always tell us we have to get on the boat and go out and visit, go see the Purple Martins at this island. And then when we moved down here, it just became a regular thing to kind of spend uh, summer's night, summer evening or weekend uh, out at Bomb Island watching the Martins as they all fly in and do their sky dance and uh everything and we all i mean everybody out there uh they all we all thought they nested there or we didn't know what really was going on it was just kind of this really cool sight to see half a million birds all just flying around this island um and so i later on went on to college uh at the university of florida where i got my degree in uh conservation and started to kind of notice a trend with i guess man's disconnect between uh, or society's disconnect between professional research and uh, what's going on in the environment. So, um, and I also started listening to EOC and started to really grasp the uh, field biologist to filmmaker episodes. And I knew I wanted to like get more into that. Uh, somehow connecting people uh, with what's uh, with what researchers are finding. And so I moved, ended up moving back to uh, South Carolina and went out on a uh, just with a on a boat ride with my family, and we went to see the Purple Martins. And then uh, my job started up uh, with this garden center, and I went out to a show, trade show in Missouri, and they were talking about Purple Martins. And then they dropped the note that. They said all purple martins nest in birdhouses and that they don't nest in, naturally in the wild anymore. And that's like the light bulb just went off in my head. I was like, oh, crap. Because uh, I went to school for conservation and had no idea this whole issue going on in my own backyard. And uh, I knew I wanted to get into filmmaking. So I was like, well, this, like, this is the perfect opportunity. Um, and so through the process it has been, I've had to, I guess, uh, just been figuring out the story, making connections, finding the experts and everything. Um, and just, jo- uh, joining a bunch of different purple Martin landlord groups on social media and just doing my research, reading a lot of research papers, uh, to really just understand this bird. I didn't realize this is the most high maintenance bird. In North America, uh, they are spoiled, but they are magnificent. Um, and uh, the thought that just like kept spurring me on is like, if well, people if people keep taking down housing, or if like we as a society continue to grow away from this nature, uh, from the environment, then 
Like, what if people, like, people quit putting up houses, then what happens to the birds? Do the, does the population collapse? Do they relearn how to nest naturally? And so I uh, spent probably six to eight months just formulating this story of how I can tell, perfectly tell that uh, the Purple Martin's plight. And, that, and now I'm at a point where I've been contacting all of the people I want to interview and trying to schedule. And I'm at the logistics part. And uh, um, the biggest hurdles I'm at now is just uh, time, trying to get time away from my day job and then also uh, just the funding to go pursue uh, filming in certain locations. So, and, and that's what leads us to now. All right. Yeah, those are, I think, I think very common sort of obstacles to run into starting off as a filmmaker. And even if you're not starting off as a filmmaker, uh, I mean, that's very common obstacles for, for all people in your situation, every filmmaker. Um, you've shot some footage? I have, yeah. Uh, the biggest struggle I ran into when, it start, when we started filming, I was able to get uh, – Due to my ecotourism business, uh, I was able to get a lot of footage of the roost um, on the lake, and uh, I'll still I still probably will uh, this coming summer. And then, uh, but the biggest one trouble I had was like finding an active colony around me because everyone in my area thinks they're all nesting on that island. Right. So it's a matter of trying to change perception and also just find the people that actually know what's going on. Uh, and I would tipped me off on Facebook of a colony about 30 minutes away from me. And so I go out either in the early mornings or uh, as soon as I get off work a couple times a week just trying to get out there and film. And so that's been good. I was just out this morning. Uh, part of this film is going to showcase how the bluebirds managed to uh, come back from the brink through human intervention just by regular people doing it doing uh, what they could by putting up birdhouses. Um, and so kind of kick it off like the Purple Martin story. It's like uh, everyone loves bluebirds. It's easy to do, and everybody can join in. You don't have to be a professional to save bluebirds, and you don't have to be a professional to save Purple Martins. Uh, and a lot of people think they have to be a professional somehow uh, when it comes to saving wildlife. So... Gotcha. Have you had you done any filmmaking at all before this? I mean, or is this like, is is this your introduction? This is my yeah. This is my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, I always uh, my dream was to somehow become some sort of a Steve Irwin esque figure as an adult. Uh, I had, I had an idea of how he, um, that all started for him, um, and I that idea kind of like. I kind of carried that with me, but then as soon as like I hit reality, I was like, oh, that's not how any of that works. So yeah, this is my beginning. Uh, I bought a cam, I bought my camcorder uh, almost two, about a year and a half ago and started using that to just kind of make some fun little uh, quick wildlife films. And then um, we just recently, uh, I just recently, did a Kickstarter back in uh, late spring and managed to uh, raise money to uh, buy the rest of the equipment needed to do this. And so I'm um, used to, I guess, nat being a naturalist and 
conservationist and having no idea how to work or now going behind the camera. I know how I could be the guy in front of the camera being the guy behind the camera is something totally different to me, but I know it's something needed. Yeah, it is. It's, it, and it's interesting, right? It's, it's like you talk about like learning how to be a filmmaker, right? But I mean, it's, you know, for someone like yourself and, and I mean, I was very much in the same boat. You're not learning like one thing. You have to learn like a whole bunch of things, right? You have yeah. to learn how to shoot the footage in in a way that's compelling, right? And then you have to learn the specific, you know, like the special set of sta- standards associated with like wildlife shooting yep. and getting wildlife shots. You're like learning how to become a wildlife cameraman. You're learning how to be become a videographer. You're familiarizing yourself with all the gear and all the, I mean, all that stuff. Like how do you record good quality sound? conducting interviews like all that stuff you know like plus on top of that you gotta you gotta raise money if you really want to make this work right yeah yeah so i yeah it's it's it can definitely be daunting so i mean i think like honestly you know the step that you've taken of like saying i'm gonna i'm gonna make this film right and like committing to that is definitely like one of those first like really big hurdles that most people don't make it past so that's cool that you are where you're at and you've like hooked yourself up with all the gear you need. You've already done a little, uh, at least a small crowdsource campaign, which I'm sure was like really good experience, um, you know, and I'm sure it like got some awareness out there, um, at least within your small circle about the project you're undertaking. So you're like starting to build an audience, you know, um, plus you get that little bit of seed money to get the project going. Did you put together a video for that Kickstarter campaign? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's on our Facebook page. Uh, the page is called Purple Haze, uh, a conservation film. And uh, I'm still, I guess the big hurdles coming up are, I guess, like copyrights and licensing and all that, having to figure out what I am legally allowed to use, whether, because uh, I know Purple Haze is Jimi Hendrix's swan song. Uh his ninth symphony and i just have this like perfect scene in my head where all the birds at the root the migration roost erupt and right before they do that Jimi hendrix just sings excuse me while i kiss the sky and that was like the initial just like kickoff um i was just like i pictured that scene i was like i can do this (laughs) yeah that's cool i like that and i like the title i do um and it's cool that you have that vision i don't know how like I think you would probably have to raise a big chunk of money to get the licenses to, <laughs> to get the rights, even to use, even if it wasn't the Jimi Hendrix version, even if you had somebody else like play a cover of it, I think you would still need to like fork out quite a bit of cash to get the rights yeah. to use it. But I mean, however, like using the name um, as your title, I don't think you would. I don't think you'll encounter any issues with that. Okay. And and again, I wouldn't even worry. Like that's not something that you need to worry about now. That's something okay. you need to worry about in like a year or you know whatever you're thinking the the sort of timeline is for your project, right? I mean, what you need to be thinking about now is like who are your characters, what's your story, and like how are you gonna raise the money to allow you to have the time that you need to actually follow through on this you know and it sounds like you've got you know definitely at least some preliminary ideas and some good leads on characters 
and you know you you've definitely got uh, uh, at least a sense of the type of story you want to tell but uh yeah you need to figure out the answer to that uh you know money question right and it doesn't have to be money it ha- it, it it can be either money or time <laughs> right um okay. but of course time often equates as money right so it's like even you know to allow yourself to take some time off of you know one of your two paid jobs you know yeah. you probably need to find some money to like commit to that uh my plan with that you speak about that um i guess my ecotourism job and my current day job are like my uh, my day job is overseas at boat gig, and so the money I make from the boat gig I plan to dump. Oh, nice! Okay. Yeah, and so it's gonna run. Uh, f- uh, we're gonna run five nights a week, and it's a very. We did the same thing last year uh, as a business. Uh, just to kind of test the waters and my, uh, my bosses, uh, they knew about it. They've seen it. They, they loved it. And they told me when I first started the job, think about trying to do this. And then I pitched the idea to them, uh, about actually pursuing this. And we were able to form a partnership with like a local, uh, licensed captain in the area and run tours, uh, that way. And it was, it, I mean, it turned out fantastic. We sold out our season. And so we expect nothing less this coming this upcoming season. Is that going to be a part of of the story? I mean, tell me tell me a little bit about. I mean, first of all, like there's there's two main threads here. The two main things you should be thinking: how do you actually make this happen logistically, right? And then the other thing is your story. And you know, no matter what you think the story is now it's going to change right so you always have to remain flexible with the doc but i mean you should constantly be like reassessing and thinking about like you know what the best way to convey the message you want is and like where the most compelling and engaging and interesting story threads are so i mean on the logistical and like funding side it, it sounds like you're in actually a not a terrible position right where you're able to you know you have some flexibility with your job to like contribute some of the money you're earning into a fund to go towards producing the film you've got really good relationships and partnerships you know with this company you're working for so you're in like a similar position in a a lot of ways to like the position i was in when i started my first film right where i was like i had a full-time job but I was like doing the job that I wanted to document. So I had the access, you know, I didn't have to do like most filmmakers when they're starting out. It's like, they need the first thing they need to do is like figure out even how to get access, you know? Um, and you've already figured that out. So that's another like huge hurdle that, that you've already overcome. Um, I mean, regarding funding, like if you haven't done this already, I would like spend some time really trying to like budget out how much it's, the whole thing is going to cost because um, it's hard to think about like what, and it's hard to know what costs are going to be like for post-production when you're working on your first film and you've never gone through that process before, you know, but you know, that's something you should be doing now, right. Is thinking about like, you need to know how much money do I need to raise? How much will I be earning like through my job that I can put into this fund? So how much will actually be in the, the account? And then what's the total budget? So how much more is needed, Right. 
And, you know, that, it, I think, like, the, the story that you're telling and what you're working on, and because it, like, has all these connections, like, through you personally and directly um, to ecotourism, I think you could start looking for sponsorships once you had a really good proposal um, and a solid budget to show people. You have a little introductory video clip that you put together with your campaign um, to use as well to show people what you're trying to create and to make that pitch. And I think you could get, I think you could get some money through sponsorships from like other, you know, similar, you know, ecotourism businesses or, uh, you know, birding or nature like retail stores. So, I mean, that, that just strikes me as like your, um, like the best fit, right? Of course, the funding will come from a variety of places. It's some of it's going to be self-financed. Some of it came from this crowdsource campaign, but I think that is, you know, an avenue that is definitely worth exploring, but you got to have the proposal and you got to have the, the budget locked down. And when you do that budget, you show how much money you've already raised and how much money you're investing personally. You know what I mean? Because you yeah. want to show like, you know, you want to show people like this is happening, right? And you need that attitude of, I'm making this film no matter what, which I, yeah. it, it sounds like you clearly have, which is good. I'm taking notes. That's why I just keep it. <laughs> awesome. The other thing, I mean, the other, the other, the other side of this, the, the flip side uh, of, of, of this, the other really important thing that you need to be thinking about is, is the story. Um, so, I mean, tell me a little bit about like, like who are these uh, potential characters you've identified um, and like, what's, what's their sort of arc? I mean, what, what are we going to see them do? So the story itself, um, it, the plan is, uh, currently to, uh, it starts out as, I guess me as an eco guide running these tours and, uh, giving background about myself, um, how I all got started in the conservation film game and um, my like current day job also doing the boat, get, boat tours. And then um, it, the catalyst is like when I found out about uh, the Martins and their dependents when uh, I grew up thinking completely differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll take, I guess it'll take my journey through, I plan to try and uh, travel to Pennsylvania to meet up with the Purple Martin Conservation Association out in Erie, Pennsylvania, and they're planning to go there actually this coming July and film some of their work uh, that they're doing up there and also talk to their, their staff and interview them uh, about uh, Purple Martins in general and their work and what's happening in uh, their current dr- trends. Then uh, I also plan to uh, it, have it follow me out to Arizona, where purple martins are still able to nest naturally. Uh, and I plan to speak with like a biologist out there with Tucson Audubon Society, and uh, she and I just kind of search uh, roam around these wilderness areas to where we were able to find purple martins and like discuss the. Uh, conservation issues that they face uh, out uh, and the reason why they're still able to nest naturally out in the Southwest. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also want to go to Brazil where uh, they spend their winters and uh, figure out uh, how they spend their winters, spend time with 
there's a I've already spoken with a uh, per, uh, a professional biologist at a, a research institute there called INPA, and they um, PMCA has gone there and done research trips with them, and they discover that martins will roost on islands in the Amazon River, and so it's going to be kind of like they're still trying to find a lot of research uh, and discover uh, martin roosts in the Amazon because they don't, it just all kind of becomes a blur whenever they get down there in the winter. So, uh, it's gonna, and each destination I travel to it kind of the underlying topic is, uh, what they face. So like invasive species with starlings and sparrows, um, habitat loss, uh, pesticides, uh, migration, uh, this human dependence habitat shift, so, uh, and the climax will be me coming back and doing uh, boat tours, uh, boat trips, and you get to see the roost in like its full force. So, um, that'll be kind of the uh, the main story behind that is just uh, going across the Martins Range and understanding the issues they face, and then the, there'll be like a sub story or a subplot of a purple martin landlord's. Uh, Martin season. So everything that goes into what it takes to uh, maintain a purple Martin colony. So the prep, uh, cleaning and getting your housing ready to waiting for the scouts to arrive to then having your colony begin to show up to then uh, nesting material and providing uh, supplementary food because um, I know a lot of when they show up, the uh, the weather can be very brutal to them. If they show up too early, the cold won't have the insects out as early, and so they won't be able to feed. So it'll go into that, and then it'll go into the citizen science aspect of uh, reporting their data of what they keep track of in their Martin colonies and sending that off to PMCA. And... Um, then eventually like the fledging of the birds and any conflicts that arise in between. So like if an owl or a hawk or something becomes a, uh, a nuisance to them, um, showcase a little bit about the predators and stuff, uh, that Martins face some of their threats, uh, natural, some of their natural threats. Hmm. So, and then it'll, and yeah, that I guess character arc will end in their fledging, their birds fledging. Um, and I plan to, I want to like, I guess, keep track or maybe do a time lapse at the end of the film of like uh, one specific like nest of birds. Because you want to root for, everybody wants to root for a character. And so uh, in this instance, you get like two, but at the same time, you also want to root for like a net, like an animal character. Everybody loves an animal character. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so. Uh, having everyone, like, I guess, watch these birds grow up in their own nests um, and then being able to see them fledge off uh, would be, I think, an audience would really enjoy that. Totally, totally. Showing the life cycle, I think, is definitely something you got to do with, with a story like that, right? And and we took a similar approach to with our film, Bluebird Man. I mean, that was that was our original idea of how we would structure it was like, it starts off in the spring, and then you go through the breeding season into fall. 
um, and you see what happens, both the monitoring and the data collection and all that stuff that happens at each stage, you know. So, um, and, you know, the fact that the fact that these are cavity nesting birds, it, it allows you to see what's going on in a way yeah. that, you know, often would be impossible or extremely difficult to, like, get access to. So it's, it's, it's a neat opportunity for that reason as well. So this is going to be a self-reflexive story. You're telling you are your main character, right? So let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, yes. Because I think that's... That I think I think you do have a good story there, right? Like, it's this this realization moment that you had of like, oh my god, this amazing thing is like right in my backyard. I mean, that's definitely something that a lot of people can relate to, and and it, and it's cool, right? And and I like the idea, and it's a fascinating species. I like the idea of like you just it's being your path to like learn more about this species, like triggered by this revelation of like oh my god this amazing thing is right in my backyard but i wonder like how your perspective will be presented you know what i mean like are you will this be like scripted narration or are you gonna have you know uh is it is it gonna be sort of just determined like you're gonna have somebody like with a camera on you and show you interacting like are you gonna be sort of like a host um, or, or are you just sort of playing the role of like, of what you do, right? Because you work this job. I mean, you work for this, uh, you know, sort of backyard nature type store, like wild bird feed store. And you're the one that pitched these field trips like this, you know what I mean? These field trips out to see the, the purple Martins, they're happening because it was your idea. Right. And so that's, that makes you an interesting character, even if you weren't the filmmaker, right? Um, and, like, somebody else making a film about Purple Martins would be like, oh, yeah, this is an interesting dude. He started this whole ecotourism thing connected to Purple Martins. Like, that, that by itself is interesting, right? And it, you could just be your own character. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, this, these are... Well, I'm, I'm curious to hear, like, I'm, I'm sure you have, uh, you know, some ideas about how you're going to deal with that. Yeah. Um, that would like, yeah, finding or creating, I guess, filming, producing and directing a film that showcases your personal journey. It's hard to do that when you're the man behind the camera. Um, so, uh, I'm still wrestling with that. The biggest, like we've talked earlier, one of the biggest hurdles is time and money. And now I'm having to find time and money for somebody else to come along with me on that journey. Um, and so that's what I'm tackling now. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have enough friends in the film industry, uh, or film as a hobby to where, uh, uh, if at least if I needed them for something local, we'd be able to do it now in terms of traveling, um, to know the different states and different countries, uh, it's obviously going to be a bit more of a logistical challenge in finding somebody that would be able to take time out of their job um, and out of their life to help me pursue this. Uh, so I'm still wrestling with that. Um, I know uh, I'm lucky I have a friend here that is working directly with me and helping me practice with stuff right now, just 
that way he and he and I are able to knock out the local stuff as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't need to be in the frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's helping me learn those things, learn those skills. So that way I can tackle them like I did this morning. Um, so that I've been fortunate that way. Uh, we're still, uh, I'm still working to find, I guess that right. Uh, that friend or, uh, second shooter to, uh, come with me as, uh, we make this film. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And I, and I mean, I, I think, you know, as I think about it, I mean, I think that's necessary no matter what, you know, um, yeah. I think, I think it'd be very difficult to do the, these, these trips. And I mean, even the local shoots, you know, I think it would be really difficult to do it yourself entirely if the camera needs to be focused on you a significant yeah. portion of the time, which it sounds like it does. Um, so yeah, you, I, I think you definitely need that. I mean, if you figure out the funding, then finding the person will become a lot easier. Even if it is somebody that you know and somebody who's a friend, it changes the the dynamic, right? Just by the fact that you're like offering to pay somebody, even if it's just a little bit of money, you know, for their time on a shoot, even if it's a local shoot, like it changes, it makes everything feel more professional. It's like, oh, I got to work for this money, you know? And so, I mean, I think that some of these things, it's, I mean, the story dictates the budget, right? Um, and so you got to be aware that both of these things are working together. And I think to do what you're trying to do, you got to find some money to pay somebody to be a shooter, yep. you know, and somebody that you trust, you know, somebody that you trust to be like doing this and getting the shot that you want, you know, as the director without you having to stress out about it. Right. Because you need to be in the moment. Like we need to see you when you're going out to do these tours, you know, like we need to see you in your element, you know, yeah. like giving your speech to um, the tourists who have come out to see Purple Martins. And we need to like feel your passion for the Purple Martins, you know, if, if it's going to work and if people are going to connect with you, it has to be like in the moment, it has to be, you know, you have to forget that there's a camera, you know, Um, which is like difficult even in a normal situation, but it'll be even more difficult for you because it's your film. It's your project. Um, So you need somebody that like you can trust and, and, and maybe that's something that like, you know, I mean, if, if you have, a friend that you're working with who's helping you out. Like if you have the opportunity to experiment, like do this, like go out, do a shot, like review the footage and like go over it with him and, you know, make sure that you're ready for when you take these big trips, because that, that you're going to spend a huge amount of the money that you raise on these three big trips. And you're not going to have another opportunity to get that stuff. You know, um, you're not going to have the budget to go, back to brazil a second time to get pickup shots i uh, you know most likely so (laughs) unless you get a real giant sponsorship which would be awesome but you got to assume that that's your one opportunity you know to get that stuff and so it's it's worth like spending the extra money and taking the extra time before you go there to make sure that um that you're ready for that you know i mean something else that is maybe worth thinking about um, within this context is just experimenting with writing out the story, Mm -hmm. Uh, which maybe you've done to a certain extent. Um, But 
especially because this is this is your personal story, and probably um, I'm guessing there'll be some narration from you in there because I think with with this type of story, I think lends itself to that and. It's difficult to like say everything or to capture all the dialogue that you really need that you really need in the edit to actually convey all the information and to, you know, transition from all these different from one scene to another and to tell the whole thing in its completion. And and it's natural to have narration because it's it would be your voice and it would be your voice, you know, talking on camera and then your voice talking off camera and it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't be jarring. It would it would feel natural to, to people if it, if it was done right, you know. And so, I mean, I think it would be a good process to go through at the stage you're at to write the story out in as much detail as you possibly can, you know. And you clearly you've got a pretty good sense in your head of like where you're going to go, what scenes you're going to shoot. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, you're you're playing this balancing act, right? Of like whatever you write is certainly not going to be like the final narration and you have to be prepared for things to like change and adapt, like both when you're shooting in the field and as new things, uh, come to light, but also in the edit room, everything's going to change, you know? Um, so you have to be prepared for that. But at the same time, like just going through, forcing yourself to go through this process and say, I'm going to write all the narration or I'm going to write the, you know, whatever it is, the, the introduction or, um, or, or this particular scene, you know, I'm just going to script out like everything that I want to convey in this particular scene. Like when I go to Brazil, you know, it's going to make you like think of things and it's going to, you know, lead to, it, it's going to help you process. So I, I think that, I mean, that's something else that, that I would maybe think about. And then, you know, the next step beyond that is, is, is practicing because, narrating a film is another one of these <laughs> tasks that we've talked about, right? It's like, okay, you want to learn how to be a filmmaker, like add this to the list of things that you need to sort of become good at, you know, it's a skill. Um, and it's not something that like you're born with, you have to like train yourself to become good at that. Um, and to, to read narration with like the appropriate, uh, emotion and, and inflection, um, and all that stuff. So, um, I would practice and I would read it a whole bunch of times and then I would, you know, read it like, say, maybe you, maybe you script out, I mean, this is just an idea. Maybe you script out the narration for like one little scene, right? And you read it a whole bunch of like different ways and like experiment and try it like in, you know, try reading it in a way that is, that feels like overly dramatic, right? Um, and then try reading it in a way that feels like, like, really quiet and like not very dramatic. I mean, experiment, right. And don't be afraid to like get a little wacky with it and then, you know, and then take a break and then listen to all of it and like pick out the ones that you think are best and like send them to, you know, send them to your friend or send them to me, you know, and just be like, dude, just listen to this and let me know what you think. Like, what should I be working on? You know? Because this is, this thing is going to be your voice, and like that is that's going to dictate whether or not people like connect to your story. Yeah, you know, because if if the narration comes off like stilted right from the very beginning, people are just going to shut off. You know, or it's yeah. going to be like, oh, this this feels unprofessional. Like I'm not interested. Yeah. You know, um, mm -hmm. you have this limited period of time. Like you have to, you know, and this and I mean I don't you know this like. 
about this on on the podcast like throughout right is like there are like you can trick people into think like thinking that your film is a big budget film you can trick them into thinking that you didn't like this wasn't your first film ever and that you did this like you know by <laughs> you did this by like taking the tiny amount of money that you're earning from eco tours and like swirling it away and like you know your your film budget or whatever you know um but you need to be willing to experiment and and but i think you also need like you need a group of people that you trust that you can like share ideas with and you need to be willing to to like take that criticism and like and uh, and learn from it and you need to be willing to change it too right like you can't get so attached to like these ideas uh, to the point where you just like latch onto it and like everybody you talk to is like no dude this doesn't work and you're like but i want it to work so bad you know <laughs> i mean i've been there you know i've yeah. definitely been there yeah i mean that's uh I think I think those are those are the big things, right? I mean, funding and story, um, and you know, I would just try to get as much shit on paper in, in both avenues as you can. You know, um, work on you know, I mean, work on a if if you haven't already. I mean, have have you put together like a, a paper outline? I have. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, awesome. I mean, I would take that and like pick a couple scenes. Experiment with writing some narration. Um, experiment um, with. I mean, you could even write out like you could even take a, a whole scene and like extrapolate. Like in best case scenario, like what questions would I ask and how would these people respond? You know what I mean? And it's not going to happen that way. But that way, at least when you go into a shoot, it's like you you're listening for the response that you want, right? And then you keep asking the question again you know, and again, and rephrasing and coming about it from different angles until that person actually says what you want, what you wanted them to say. And you're like, Oh, I got that sound bit, you know? Um, so it, it helps you, I think, um, when you're out on a shoot to like have that, that mindset, but obviously, you know, it might be, they just never say what you want them or expect them to say. Um, so you have to be ready for that too, but yeah, practicing the narration, and you know trying to like find a style that works and uh sh you know not being afraid to like share that with a bunch of people and take the criticism and you know adapt to it um but then also like spend some time going through the budget you know figure out like get a solid number of like how much money you have raised already from various sources and how much do you need to do this um, and, uh, you know, put together a, a little proposal. I can share with you like, uh, like a sample document, um, yeah. for like, a, a, a like a sponsor, a sponsorship packet, you know? Yeah. Um, and I mean, you can throw one of these together, like pretty simply with like some nice photos, which I'm sure you have, and just like some good concise language and just a very simple tiered thing of like, you give me $500, this is what you get. You know, your name goes in the credits of the film or whatever it is, you know, or I give you however many social media posts, you know, um, just really simple rewards like that, really similar to like the, the crowdsource campaign of like finding these rewards. But you have to think about what's valuable to, uh, uh, you know, a business, a business just like the one that you work for. Right. And I mean, they should be the first ones that you pitch this to, you know, 
Like yeah. you work for them and you're telling your story, but your story is connected to their story. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah. I don't know what, I mean, that maybe is dependent on the relationship with your boss, but I mean, if you pitched to them this whole idea of doing purple Martin tours and they said yes, and the money, you know, then like that's, uh, then you're probably in a pretty good position, you know, um, mm -hmm. to like ask them for a little bit of money to do this project, you know, maybe you ask them to like fund the fund the my trip to brazil and yeah. i'll you know fund my trip to brazil and i will like do some guest blogs for you and you know i'll let you use some of the photos that we took cuz that that's going to promote the ecotourism business taking people out mm -hmm. to do the the bird trips you know so yeah. i i think you could that would be i mean the advice I always got when I was starting out is you start with the easiest ask, right? When you're thinking about who do yeah. I ask for money, what's the most likely to say yes, <laughs> right? And I think that's your most likely to say yes right there. Um, but do it professionally, right? Because you want to impress them, even though you already have a good rapport. Like, put together the packet, make it look super professional, and see what happens. Um, and, you know, and, and then ask, and then ask, you know, your boss or the, the, the store owner, like who else do you think would be interested in this? You know, there must be other local stores or, um, you know, other, other businesses. It's like what benefit, you know, you're trying to think of like what businesses would like, could potentially benefit from being associated with this film and like, who's the target audience and like, where's the overlap, you know, who's yeah. going to watch your film. And of those people that are going to watch your film, like, what businesses are they going to spend money at? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I think like keeping it local is good um, because you're, you know, you don't need, to, you, I'm guessing you don't need to raise, raise like a huge sum of money. Right. And it's, it's a local story. That would be, that would, that, those, are, those would be my two big pieces of advice. But I mean, yeah, any, uh, I'm curious, like any, are there any other like questions or things that you're, you know, anything that you're like stuck on or. I always, uh, learn from, learn by example from other people mm -hmm. and their experiences. And so I just have a, uh, just a handful of questions sure. and I'll probably think of other questions as you answer those sure. questions. Uh, but, uh, whenever you were starting out with a uh, scavenger hunt, um, did you keep your job with fish and wildlife through that? process of making that film or did it get to a point where like you had to leave your job because your film was so much more time consuming so yeah i let's see when i started shooting i kept my job for three years and i wasn't working for fish and wildlife i was working for the peregrine funds um, ah, yeah. non-profit um and so i started shooting for the film um and after i started shooting i worked uh the, the field biology job, like I was out, you know, working out in the field with condors in Arizona and Utah for a, a year yeah. um, after I started shooting. And then the Peregrine Fund offered me a job in Boise, where I live now, um, working for the captive breeding program. Um, and I took that job and I worked that job for a almost two years before I finally quit and committed myself to basically like working on it full time for a period of time. How, um, how long was that 
period of time after you quit? Oh, geez, that's a good question. Let me think about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I no, I because I, I I essentially quit my job and then almost immediately um, started Wildlands. Um, yeah. So that was like late spring of 2011 and the film was finished a little bit more than a year later okay so it was like a four year you spent a year full time Mm -hmm. and then three years like part time basically yeah but even though the film a year after um, we didn't have a distribution deal for it for another year Right. So over the course of that year, after it was finished, we were organizing screenings and submitting it to film festivals and, you know, just trying to figure out, like, what the fuck do we do with this thing now? You know, because it's I didn't have that foresight. Right. um, To think about what the distribution channels were until the film was completely finished. And then and that was the moment when I started thinking about, well, like, where am I going to? who's going to watch this? You know, I mean, I knew who I wanted to watch it, but I didn't think about the how as much as, as I should have. So, you know, it's never too early to start thinking about the, those questions of who am I trying to reach? What's your target audience? And how am I going to get it to them? (laughs) You know, I mean, I think running your Kickstarter campaign, um, I mean, that's your, that you're doing the right thing. You're, like by running that Kickstarter, you're essentially starting your distribution process right at the very beginning. Yeah. Cause you're building an audience for that film. You're figuring out who the story resonates with, you know, who's the core group of people that are really interested in purple Martins and the, the story you want to tell. Right. And you know that now. Um, yeah. so that's, that's awesome. I to like be affirmed that I have an idea of what I'm doing. <laughs> professional. Uh, so, uh, just kind of going in with, uh, as you were talking about, you were struggling with your distribution plan at the start. How, what was that? Or like what, when you figured it out, what was your distribution process or plan? Um, whenever you finally like had it all put together and started screenings and all that. Sure. You mean for scavenger hunt? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, initially our plan was just to submit it to as many film festivals as, as we could. Right. Yeah. Um, and the vast majority of those were rejections, um, which was quite disheartening initially. I've now come to learn that that's just what you have to expect. It doesn't matter how good your film is, you're going to get, you're going to have to deal with rejection in this industry. <laughs> um, so expect that. Um, okay. It doesn't mean you should, you know, stop trying. Um, yeah. But we submitted it to dozens and dozens of film festivals um, and, you know, uh, initially submitting it to like all the really top tier ones and getting rejected from all of them and then working our way down. And then finally we found the niche when we started submitting it to like wildlife and conservation specific film festivals. Um, And... Uh, you know, we, this was the approach we took on this film was basically like we screen it at as many film festivals as we can. And we talk to people, we attend those festivals, we talk to people, um, and we try to make connections with, uh, folks from distribution companies. You know, that was the sort of approach that we were kind of fixated on. Um, I think, you know, in retrospect, I think to our detriment, 
um, with that first film. Um, but we did eventually attend a film festival that um, had some representation by a whole group of, uh, you know, a whole bunch of like quite reputable distribution companies. Um, we had the opportunity to pitch the film to some folks from this company called Cinema Libre, um, and they liked it. And, uh, and we signed a distribution deal with them. Um, and that was like super exciting, you know? Um, and it was, I mean, this was 2000, this was the end of 2012 was when this was all happening. And then it was released at the beginning of 2013. Uh, I mean, it's that this, like everything. And I mean, this is still happening. Right. But I mean, at that time, especially like the whole world of, distribution was just shifting really dramatically right um and uh we were kind of stuck in this like older mindset this this older approach which i mean a lot of films still work this way but um you know i I, in retrospect i don't think it was the right approach for that particular film this relationship with the distribution company i mean initially that was like we were super hopeful and like this is really exciting and this is going to be great and a ton of people are going to see our film um, but almost immediately there was this realization of like, well, these people don't get it. They don't understand who I want to reach, you know, cause I wanted to reach hunters, Yeah. you know? And like, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to reach in, you know, environmentalists and, and, and them too. But like the most important group of people I wanted to reach was hunters. And like, they didn't, you know, that they, they distribute all these advocacy films, you know, and like the people that they were reaching out to, um, to try to get screenings of our film and to try to get like television broadcasts to try to get it out throughout all these networks and to try to promote, you know, DVD sales and all this stuff, just, you know, this, they had this whole engine and this, you know, massive list of like contacts in the sort of environmental and advocacy world that they used to like, market and promote and distribute um all the films that they have on their slate it just it didn't work i mean it 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 didn't meet our expectations and it didn't meet their expectations you know um and that's not to say that it was the whole thing was unsuccessful i mean we had we had a lot of like really amazing screenings of the film um you know both at film festivals and just sort of one-off screenings that we organized or that we partnered with other groups with I mean, there were a lot of, like, really awesome moments, you know. I mean, I'll never forget the moment when, like, I think it was our first film festival screening that after the screening during the Q&A, one of the, someone in the audience stood up and said, I'm a hunter, and your film convinced me to switch to non-lead ammunition. I was like, holy shit, I did it, you know, like, that was, that was unbelievable, that was, you know, I was like, I'm, you know, that was my goal, right? Um, but of course, like, and so I feel like I succeeded in, you know, the conveying the information in a way that, like, uh, was effective at, at changing people's, you know, shifting people's perspective, which, that's awesome. Um, but it was really difficult to figure out how to deliver that content to all the people I wanted to, to, to get it, you know, and, um, and what we did, you know, we took that and then with my next film, Bluebird Man, um, what I did was before I shot a single frame, I wrote up a proposal and I, uh, called up 
someone I knew who worked at Idaho Public Television, and I was able to get a meeting with Idaho Public Television, and I went in there with that proposal, and um, and they had seen my previous film, which was a benefit. This might not have happened if they hadn't like seen my previous film, but they signed a uh, they signed a letter of commitment to broadcast Bluebird Man before I shot a single frame. So I had a distribution outlet. I knew that this film was going to air on Idaho Public Television and reach a huge I mean the reach of uh public television is 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 enormous, you know. Um I was going to reach a ton of people in the state of Idaho at least and the surrounding communities and it was a local film, right? I mean it, I was in, very similar to what you're doing. I mean it had you know threads of the story that took place in other parts of um North America, but you know 70-80% of the film took place in Idaho. So I'm like this is this is the outlet I want, right? And um and so that was our approach. We uh and it also gave us a deadline, right? Cuz we set a date to do that um that first broadcast, the premiere. Um so it forced us to finish it by a certain time. Um and then we just did the fi- the film festival thing as well afterwards and we were much, you know, like clearly we had learned something through the process of making the first film because we were much more successful on the film festival route with Bluebird Man than we were with Scavenger Hunt. Um, and that actually, you know, the, the attention that we received by screening it at all these film festivals led to a nationally broadcast public television series reaching out to us and um, asking if they could include Bluebird Man as an episode of their national public television series. I don't know. I mean, I think I think that says a couple things, right? Like first of all, you know, having that foresight and thinking about distribution um and who you're trying to reach and how you're going to reach them is super important. They're at the very earliest stages of a project, right? However, I think the other lesson there is that good quality storytelling will get recognized. And realistically, even if we hadn't taken that step, like that's a nice story of like, oh, we learned this lesson with Scavenger Hunt and therefore we preempted this with our next film and we got this letter of commitment to broadcast our next film before we even started shooting it, right? That's pretty cool. But realistically, we would have gotten that national public television broadcast even if we hadn't done that, most likely. Because the reason that was solicited to us was because we'd screened it at such and such film festival and there was some buzz and somebody talked to somebody and we met somebody and interacted with them. There was an introduction and this, you know, whole series of things. And so, I mean, I think the, the second lesson is your story is really, really important. All the story development stuff, you know, is like just, yes, the importance of that is tantamount. You know, it's more important than anything else. It's more important than like what gear you're shooting on or um, anything like that. It's telling a compelling story, um, and if you do that, it it will be recognized. It's funny you say that because I I went to a, a speaking event where Joel Sartori, who does the photo work with National Geographic, he said yeah. basically the same exact thing mm-hmm. to me when I asked him in a Q and A. Basically, what we're talking about now is like, mm-hmm. how do you get to that grand stage? Uh, like so many uh, filmmakers and photographers do. So, and he said, quality story storytelling mm-hmm. uh, is key. It is. It is the key. And I mean, the other thing is that 
you're going to learn a lot from this process, you know? Yeah. And like, if you decide to go make another film after this film, it's probably going to be better than, than this film, you know? <laughs> That's just the way it works, right? This is your first yeah. film. Like you just picked up a camera for the first time, like a year and a half ago, you know, and you have no yeah. training in filmmaking. And it's, it's like, it, there's, you have to learn a thousand different tasks. Um, yeah. and you have to be able to connect them all together. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think it's important to like stay realistic as well. I mean, it's like you're, there's this balancing act of like you, you, your goals should be big. I mean, you should, uh, maintain, like you should work to like achieve your loftiest goals. Um, but you know, you should also be, be realistic and, and understand that there's going to be rejection. I hear that. Uh, I think that's like, I guess the pill I'm still struggling to swallow. Because I guess, again, I've never, I'm birthed by fire here, uh, essentially. And so uh, I guess my fear of failure is a little, keeps me on edge a little bit every time. Um, sometimes it creeps in and just gets me. Gets me going. I end up being super productive at that time too. <laughs> I mean, something else I'll say is is persistence. You know, and uh, you know, again, this is I think advice that 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 a lot of a lot of people would share is that. I mean, look, I think you're going to make a kick-ass film, right? But like, let's say you make a film and it's just straight up awful. I mean, you you probably won't think it's awful, but like everybody you send it to is just like, dude, this film is terrible <laughs> right and that's what everybody tells you and you're <laughs> like you could go into a hole and like curl up there and you know cry yourself to sleep every night and say i'm never doing filmmaking again this was a terrible idea you know yeah. um or you could say like well shit what did i learn from this experience and how am i going to do that differently next time you yeah. know um and i made a very conscious effort to do a whole number of things quite differently for my second film than I did for my first film. And it totally like paid off. I got so much more recognition, both personally and for my company with my second film, which was shorter. And it wasn't, it it was, it was just a much smaller film. You know, Mm -hmm. I was, I did everything in a year start to finish. Whereas as you know, I was explaining to you earlier, my first film took from the time I started shooting until um, it was released for four and a half years. So, persistence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, whenever you got that, when you wrote your proposal and pitched it to that Idaho public television network uh, and they agreed to show it um, whenever you finished, did you receive funding from them or any kind of financial or equipment, any kind of aid from them? Nope. No funding. Nope. Um, and yes. you would be hard pressed to find any public television station anywhere that has, um, they all have, uh, m- most of them have a little bit of money to put yeah. towards, uh, paying, um, independent filmmakers to produce content, um, to air, but it's very, very, very limited. Um, and yeah. I, I'm now, I've become close friends with, um, uh, one of the filmmakers that works at Idaho public television subsequently. And, you know, it's, the chances of that happening or the chances of you getting 
uh, your funding that way are extraordinarily slim, um, yeah. especially if it's your first project. So I wouldn't go in there expecting that. But, but mm. in my experience, we've worked with not just Idol Public Television, but several other uh, public television stations to put together agreements for airing uh, our content. And they love being approached by independent filmmakers that want to share their films. I think they'll be receptive. You know, figure out who your local public television stations are and reach out to them. See where it goes. You know, don't expect money, but just feel out like their willingness or their interest in, uh, in your project. And, um, you know, probably they're not, they're probably not going to like commit to it. Um, not knowing what the final product will look like, but almost certainly they'll say when your film is done, send us a link. And if they like it, you know, and the bar is, is much lower, right? I mean, I talked about how, um, you know, the film festival circuit is just, it's just inevitable that it is going to be full of rejection, you know? Um, and you know, we experienced that with scavenger hunt and that was a learning process for me. Um, I produced, uh, another short little film. This, This is actually the, the, the only real experience I have with, um, you know, inserting myself in, into a, a story is the the little 15-minute film I made about a uh, through-hike of the Long Trail in Vermont um, yeah. that I did with my mom. And it was like our personal story of hiking this long-distance trail. Um, and, man, I thought, like, I thought it was a kick-ass story. I mean, it was just a short little film that I did without a budget. Um, but like, I was like, man, like this is gonna go somewhere on the festival circuit. I really thought that. Right. Um, and Bluebird Man was like kicking ass, um, screening it and winning all these awards at film festivals. And I'm like, this is gonna go somewhere. Right. Not a single film festival accepted it. Um, but I reached out to the folks at Vermont public television and they were so excited to have this story available for them to broadcast. Um, And so it aired on Vermont public television and like the number of people that saw that film because it aired on Vermont public television multiple times as compared to uh, how many people would have seen it at a single film festival screening, even if it was the most prestigious film festival in the country, like orders of magnitude, more people saw that film um, on by having it aired on Vermont Public Television, okay. you know, so um, that I think is definitely I think that's a, uh, sort of an avenue. Uh, it's one of these distribution avenues that I think um, is is often overlooked. Is like local, go straight for the local. Getting a national public television broadcast is extraordinarily difficult. Um, yeah. But if you go straight to a local station and it's a story that is relevant. To that, yeah. that area, then you've got yeah. a really good shot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, as soon as you brought, bring that up, I already know of the local uh, public television network here in Columbia that I know I'd, I've met, I guess, a few of the uh, people that have shows on that television, on that network. Right. Uh, and so that just gives me, I mean, that's a great just so I did another light bulb that goes off. Uh, <laughs> cool. Cool. Perfect. Um, just a couple more, I guess when you were starting out with scavenger hunt, 
I mean, when you got in terms of funding, it was that just personal fi- like personal funds going into that. Yep, that was my savings, um, and I was lucky that I um, was working a job that like wasn't paying me a huge amount of money, but like it was full time with benefits and housing was provided, and I lived in the middle of freaking nowhere, so I didn't spend money on anything, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I actually, yeah, that was that was essentially all the seed money, my personal savings. And then I guess before you got into all of, uh, um, I guess wildlife filming and everything, I, I, I mean, I've heard a bit about, uh, just your experience through the podcast and everything, but did you have like any experience before you jumped into scavenger hunt or you were just like, kind of like me, it's like, I want to make this documentary because it, people need to see this or hear this. I had a little bit of background. I mean, I I did two degrees when I w- went through undergrad, and one was an environmental science degree, and the other was uh, cinema and photography. But the cinema and photography degree, there were three different concentrations there, and the one I chose was screenwriting because at the yeah. time I was thinking my vision was I'm gonna like I'm gonna write films, not produce films. Um, and so I didn't like I took these introductory. But the the main focus was on was on writing, um, and that's that's certainly relevant to producing a documentary. But all the like technical stuff, like you know, uh, it's I didn't have any of the equipment. I didn't have any experience using any of the equipment. I knew nothing about production. This has been this has been really encouraging, um, and thanks thanks for letting me reach out and chatting. Um, and would love to just keep uh, keep in touch as this film progresses, if that's totally cool with you. Uh, yeah, absolutely, man. And I mean, it's good to hear that that it's encouraging um, because um, it's a difficult process, right? And um, and I totally understand like what you're going through and and the stresses involved with it. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that I can be of help in you know sharing my experience. And, uh, yeah, we should definitely do some follow-up calls. Um, I think it'd be neat to just kind of check in with you periodically as you go through this process and, like, share little updates. And so let's definitely stay in touch and, uh, you know, see where this goes. All right. That was my conversation with Zach Steinhauser. I'm curious to hear what listeners thought about this episode. Did I share good advice with Zach? Was I leading him down the wrong path? Was any of this helpful information for you? Let us know either by leaving a comment on the show notes page or by joining the EOC podcast Facebook group and leaving a comment there. The show notes page for this episode can be found at wildlensinc.org slash EOC164. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Wow.